It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. A little bit of a different interview today. We have Matthew Hagebourg coming on the podcast, the head of performance at Yumbo Visma. To answer some questions like, what does a head of performance actually mean? Because I've been working with Matthew for about a year and a half now on some climbing stuff and and other things for Yumbo, more race analysis, but I don't really, I don't know what head of performance means. And it actually means different things across different world tour teams. And so we'll talk about that as well as polarized versus pyramidal training, the Norwegian method, lactate measurement, some of the actual training stuff that's relevant to amateur cyclists as well, as well as what's changed a lot or what are the big things that have changed in World Tour training across the season in the last 10 years or five years as well and how that differs between riders. So I thought it'd be good to fill the space this week before the Tour de France preview. We were going to record that Monday or Tuesday. We'll let you know on Twitter, on the LRCP Twitter account, when we've recorded it and when to expect it but i hope you enjoyed this interview with more of a training and performance focus uh, from the inside of the world tour welcome to the lantern rouge cycling podcast matthieu it's uh thanks for taking the time out before the tour de france probably a pretty busy time for you an important time especially with the national championships time trial uh yesterday for multiple riders on yumbo but we're going to do sort of a broad overview of what a performance manager or a head of performance does, you know, in a world tour team. And I wanted to know what's what's your background. Uh, I know you were a rider, but in terms of you're a rider for how long, and then what did you study, and yeah, just your background in the sport because you've been in the sport for a long time. Yeah, so so I was a professional rider for three years with Cofidis between 2006-2008. Before that, I was two years on the Rabobank uh, under-23 uh, squad, which was already quite a professional environment. Um, and uh, yeah, during my, my professional career, I was also still studying human movement sciences in Maastricht, Maastricht University, which is basically um, uh, being educated in um, in uh, exercise physiology and nutrition, and 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 educated as a scientist, uh, and I finished my studies in two thousand seven. So when I was when I was professional, but I wasn't really a good professional. So I already quit cycling at, in two thousand eight, uh, and then I got offered uh, a job at the Rabobank development team again to okay. become a trainer there by Louis de la Haye, who was then, let's say, performance manager at Rabobank. And he asked me um, to train some riders uh, there. So I started coaching um, five or six riders just as a part-time job, but but pretty quick, quickly I grew, in, grew more into the organization and got more responsibilities and got responsibility as, as yeah, let's say performance manager or head coach at the under-23 team of Rabobank until 2012, and then Rabobank pulled the plug 
from the sponsorship and i um i went with the with a professional team then blanco and then um lotto jumbo and then uh jumbo visma and then from 2016 i was really head of performance so from that time i'm i'm in the role that i'm now in as well okay and what does a head of performance do because i was looking around all the team the team websites uh you know ineos ef uae yumbo and it's actually there's not really it's not really a defined structure um that applies to all the teams and, and there's sort of a different structure across a lot of the teams uh uae is probably a little bit similar but so so what does a head of performance or what what do you actually do as a head of performance what are your main roles and responsibilities so my main responsibility is is making sure riders are optimally prepared for the race so i'm less involved in making the selections for a race or strategics etc also also i talk a lot with marine and grisha about that as well but but my main responsibility is making sure riders get into a race with the best condition with the best nutrition with the best equipment so we have three pillars behind performance which are training which is nutrition and which is equipment and and uh, those are my key responsibilities making sure that's all in order uh, and obviously we have a big group of people uh, i'm working with so we have uh, four for in the world tour team we have four trainers uh, coaching all the riders individually uh, we have a fantastic nutrition team led by martijn redegeld and we have also people working on the equipment uh, and especially the, the the performance side of equipment is led by Jenko drost uh, and we just acquainted um, martin's a former rider of our team as head of apparel uh, which means he, he is becoming responsible for all the non-bike parts so that means clothing helmets etc so they are all part of the performance team which is led by me but that's that's uh, hopefully it's clear that, that those are my uh, responsibilities so you uh, just narrowing down on the equipment side of things so like you you don't have an engineering degree so is that uh, his name was drost is he more like the engineer who will assess on an engineering basis potential equipment changes and then you will also sort of assess those results above him i presume the same thing happens at ineos with bigham doing that role as an engineer and then someone above him says okay that sounds right we're going to use that piece of equipment yeah exactly so so in my role it's also important to to, to follow the, the big lines and that we have a, a clear vision where we are going to i'm not i'm not a super technical guy so that's why yanko is in our team to make sure that on the technical side of the equipment everything is right uh, and we're not doing like stupid uh, stuff that's very innovative but maybe uh, also very risky he, he, he is the guy to make those uh, assessments uh, but in general of, of when we are obviously uh, when we are going to a race like the tour de france i i make an analysis of the course i uh, i make sure that we are knowing what is needed on that on that course on a tt course for example and then i talk with Yenko together uh, how we're going to approach that that uh, that equipment setup for that specific race, 
and he is going much more into details about uh, wheel choice, tire choice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's a little bit how it goes. Okay, and regarding coaching and training riders, do you still coach riders yourself, or are you kind of like I think Dan Lorang at Bora? He stepped away from that, and he, now he manages a team of coaches under him at Bora Hansgrohe without actually coaching any rider himself. No, I do still coach uh, riders myself. Yeah, so I, I'm working on an individual basis with with uh, with some some yeah quite some riders in the team. But okay. we have divided this group in uh, yeah, let's say four four groups of riders, and we have Marijn Zeeman, Tim Heemskerk, and Mark Lamberts. As the other three coaches who are coaching the riders individually on training uh, but training is only one part of the equation then we have martijn redegeld who is there working on the nutrition programs um, and and uh, and other as experts especially we have also added uh, a strength and conditioning coach uh, to our performance team to minimize uh, risk on injury and also to make sure rehabilitation times become shorter because we analyzed uh, the last few years that we 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 are losing a lot of racing days because of riders being injured of being sick and we felt we had to to make a step forward on that so uh, th that's why um, we also added uh, Jarno in this case to our team um, but he is more working on the off the bike exercises of the bike training let's say whereas mark marijn tim and me are mostly working on on the bike training okay and as head of performance is there like an overall training philosophy that you subscribe to that then gets pushed and is evident in sort of the training plans those those coaches do like what i'm talking about is you know the the methodologies or systems like polarized training versus pyramidal training or like the new hot one is norwegian method whatever that means with a thousand lactate measurements and double training days or is there no real yeah. there's no real jumbo visma philosophy of training well definitely there is because yeah. it's important in in our philosophy um it it shouldn't really matter who is your coach uh, okay uh, especially on on the physical side of things, let's say. So it's it's not possible that that Tim Heemskerk is taking a completely other approach than me, working uh, with with riders both working to the Tour de France, for example. So we are discussing a lot together. We have a lot of meetings together. Um, so I also don't really like the idea that saying like I'm the coach of Jos van Ende, for example, because we are doing it together. I get a lot of input from my colleagues and also from the nutrition side, etc., to make the ideal program. Um, and that means that riders of Team Jumbo Visma, they are uh, coached by a group of people and not by a specific uh, coach. Um, and in that case, so that's why it's important to follow more or less the same philosophy. And that's the philosophy. It's not like a fixed philosophy because we are discussing and we are evaluating and we are trying to improving our methods. Um, but like I say, it's not possible that, that one of our coaches suddenly does a complete other training session that we haven't discussed before. And that's, and that's my responsibility to make sure we are following the, 
the bigger lines and we are following the same philosophy. Obviously, when coaching riders, there's also the, the yeah, let's say the fact of, of chemistry between people. And that's, and that's why we try to pick a little bit um, me with some riders and Marijn with some riders because we think the chemistry between those, those people, this coach and this rider is very good. Uh, and that keeps like, let's say, uh, still in a motivate motivational environment every year. Um, uh, so that, that, that's, that's still a part of, but it's also important, but in terms of training methods, it's, it's, uh, we're following more or less the same philosophy together. And how much has that changed or, or what's been the biggest changes in say from 2012, the last 10 years, and then the last five years and the last two years as, cause there's been a lot of changes. I mean, power meters, power meters were already around and being used in 2012. People were training to power then, but what do you think have been the biggest changes in, I think nutrition has changed a lot in the last, uh, with carbohydrates in the last five, uh, seven years, but specifically with training. What do you think have been the biggest changes in the sort of long-term, medium-term and, and short-term at, at world tour level? Um, so I think the, the, the number of intensity, the intensity days, the number of intensive trainings, especially in wintertime, has increased a lot. I think okay. that, that's, that's the biggest change from 2012 until now. Um, and also the, the time, the, the rest period after a season has, has shortened, especially when we look, look at our, at our um, practice, let's say. Um, when I was a rider, still myself, I took maybe six weeks off the bike and then restarted training. Um, but, but nowadays, uh, we try to limit those off the bike um, periods in order not to lose too much and to make sure you start at a decent level already in November. And that doesn't mean in November you start training immediately with, with 20 or 25 hours, but, but say the, 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 the period of inactivity, complete inactivity has shortened a lot. Um, so yeah, just in, again, in big lines, those are the things that, that has changed uh, most compared to 10 years ago and obviously then more on a, on a detailed uh, basis a detailed thing you can say uh, type of training has changed a little bit uh, number of training days on one day so so double days uh, has increased a little bit uh, since since uh, 2016 or 2017 those things have changed a little bit but i think the the, the biggest change is is more intensive training already in the winter and less inactivity in the winter. Okay. So the days of the 30 hours for two months, December, January, no sprints that they're, they're done. Um, because, and I think that that's just not, that's everywhere. I think, because I think that's evident when you see the January and February races and you compare when I compare the January and February races and the watts per kilo and the performances, to five, seven years ago, all these races are much more fiercely contested. A larger pool of riders are already in pretty good shape already February 1st. 
Yeah, it's true. It's true. So the, the, the level we are seeing already in December training camps is, is pretty high. And, it, and that's really a big difference from, from, uh, from a few years ago. I, I remember that, that a few years ago when we were in December camp, there were always a few riders who were really off the pace. They, they even couldn't follow, let's say, a 220-watt uphill uh, ride. And they really needed a few weeks that's to come me. back at a, dec a decent level. <laughs> But th that's that. Those times are really gone. Everybody oh, no. already in December is well prepared, um, and and I think I think uh, thinking of it now, also what has changed is is uh, the type of of sport. So the the type of activity that's been done by professional cyclists has expanded. So we have a lot of a lot. Oh, I'm, I can say almost all riders are running in the winter. Really? Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, and you just riders. let them do it or you have some pretty because like injury risk with running is, is high is there some pretty strict guidelines on if you're going to run don't fuck yourself up and give yourself a metatarsal injury yeah obviously and and also if you don't have experience in running uh don't do it or if you want to start then then we are pretty strict on on let's say a build-up program when yeah. running which which starts with with, with just walking and jogging and uh, not on a hard surface, but but rather on a on a soft surface, soft surface, to make sure that there's a, really a gradual increase in load. But um, I must say, already this generation has has been raised with with other sports, and it's also something we are really encouraging in our uh, under twenty three squad to do other sports than only cycling, uh, because I also think think that that's. Uh, Scientific science already showed that that um, the, the the top elite athletes performing nowadays they have a really broad background of sports and not just only cycling. And I also yeah. think in terms of injury risk, it's it's uh, obviously when you're not um, used to run, then then it's a risk. But if you're already been used to run, it's 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 in fact uh, injury uh, reducing. To be able yeah. to do other sports only just only than cycling especially with cyclists like some of them if they've only been cycling they never do any load-bearing activity one crash bang broken bone um yeah. <clears throat> and i'm not sure. sure like you even if you run in november if you crash you can obviously still break your bones but yeah it must yeah, it must help doing some load-bearing activity um at least. And then I guess Schemo as well is popular. And, you know, Mike Woods on Israel, I think he does a lot of ski mountaineering. He obviously did a lot of running. Um, and, you know, he was podium, you know, monuments at 34 after coming into the sport late. Um, okay. What, this is more of a, an amateur cycling interest question. Um, traditionally or not traditionally but like the easiest way for a new cyclist gets a new power meter they get a power meter like oh my god i don't have to train to heart rate anymore i can train to zones they go out and they do an ftp test whether it's a 20 minute test and then they take 95 percent of that power and say that's my ftp and then set zones off that um with the warm-up protocol whether it's a ramp test is that is that dead at world tour level like how are zones being set now is it by an ftp or ramp test or is it through lact because all the norwegian stuff is just like lactate measurement lactate measurement are zones now being set by 
power at spe specific lactate thresholds for your for the whole training plan. Yeah, obviously, I'm, I'm I'm not talking about complete will to level because I still think twenty minute tests are done and and used as as a setting an FTP and 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 setting zones. The way we work now is is using lactate measurements uh, to set zones. Um, not like super regularly so it's it's in our practice it's not really i think it's not really possible to do that every six weeks i don't see a really an advantage of doing that to be like really oh we have five watts more so we change now everything because we are working on a daily basis with the riders so even with the power pulse we are receiving and seeing every day we can also see improvement um especially with the with the the feedback that riders are giving on their training sessions but to set to set zones we are we are using um uh yeah lactate measurements at specific uh, intensities to see how more or less um uh first uh, aerobic threshold uh, uh what it is and and then anaerobic threshold and use that as as ftp power and then use those numbers together to set zones and is that testing actually less intensive on the rider because they're not doing a full gas 20 minute effort so it is possible to do it more often during yeah. the season theoretically yeah yeah so so we are doing a, a, a lab test in the winter to 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 define vo2 max really measured uh, but that's also part of of the the medical uh testing so so is we uh, it's 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 uh for two purposes, uh, and then on, on in the field we do uh, maximal testing, eight minute intervals, uh, and sometimes we add a five minute all out. But yeah, five minute all out is still uh, better <laughs> to uh, uh, to deal with for a rider than a twenty minute all out. Yeah, and he's. I guess, does this mean everybody needs to go out and purchase lactate measurement devices or for, for... No, we are, we, are, we, are, we are helping them. So we are always there as coaches when doing those, uh, those tests. No, no, so, I, mean, and... I mean for, for amateurs. Like, is, is it really marginal and it doesn't make too much of a difference? And I guess FTP testing by power zone and then riding to power zones is is still going to give you a lot of improvement as, and that's how it was done at world tour level anyway for a long time yeah but i i believe uh if if as an amateur cyclist you are really focusing a lot on 20 minutes and and going a lot in those details that's 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 not the point in amateur cycling uh the the point is being consistent in your training um knowing yourself by uh doing specific training sessions and seeing how many watts you can do for two minutes or for five minutes um, um and also using your rate of perceived exertion especially though that so your, your your feeling about how intense a ride is uh, i think that's that's much more important than than testing yourself every every uh, six weeks and going a lot uh, into those details, um, because I don't think, as an amateur cyclist, that that's really the point. Yeah, I mean, there's some. I know like, I used to do it when I was at university. Maybe because some people just take a lot of an, in, an interest in it, because you just oh, I'm interested in 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 you know 
testing my physiological markers or whatever. Um, but how would, this is what I've always wondered, how, would, uh, how does the preparation for a sprinter, a Dylan Kronerwechen, who we just saw at the Dauphiné kind of doing for Jayco, almost training in that race with the hills because it wasn't a great course for him before the Tour de France, how does a pure sprinter like that their preparation for the Tour de France in terms of a training block and different sessions differ from a pure GC rider. Is it as different as we think, or is the sprinter still doing a lot of threshold work, a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of work with sprints added in? And, and is, is the GC rider also doing a lot of sprints as well, or VO2 work? Well, I think... The way we look at it is, is yeah. What what's your your key characteristic, your your uh, main speciality on how to win a race? And for a sprinter, obviously, that's that's uh, sprinting as hard as you can. So have a twelve or a fifteen second maximal power output as high as possible after a race. At the end of the race, obviously. Whereas for a, for a GC rider, the longer efforts are more important to win the race. I think the biggest difference between a GC rider and a sprinter is, is the volume. So the, 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 the training weeks are much more, uh, are much bigger for training uh, for GC riders than for sprinters. In terms of hours, not just intensity. In terms of hours, yes, yes. Okay. And then also in terms of threshold training, I think a sprinter shouldn't do that a lot. Um, because it, it will limit his ability to, to sprint. On the other hand, he has to do some to, to, to get as fresh as possible to the, to the finish of the race. So it's, it's, a, it's a tight balance. Uh, but if you, terms and if you want to talk in general terms, I think the number of hours a GC rider is doing compared to a sprinter is much bigger. And then the number of, of yeah, the, the amount of threshold work a sprinter is doing should be less than a GC rider, which is pretty obvious. Okay. And sort of taking that again to maybe something people can relate to, if someone is doing 60-minute flat criteriums, and first of all, can you even deplete all your glycogen in, in an event like that? Um, which means like does it really matter how efficient or what someone's fat max zone is if they're just racing flat criteriums for 60 minutes or less and and do they really need to be doing 20 hours a week um or 25 hours a week or is really the determinant of success for that is like your repeatability of a 15 second power output um like do they really need to be doing a lot of threshold work at all, especially if you've, if you've only got realistically eight to 12 hours a week to train? Yeah, that, that's an important point uh, you're, you're mentioning at last, because, yeah, if you're, if you're pretty limited in, in hours of training, uh, then, then you should try to, to maximize the effect of those training sessions uh, as good as possible. Still, I believe... Even if it's a 60-minute effort, uh, the aerobic part of that effort is very important. And being able to repeat a lot of 15-second surges or something is also defined by your aerobic capacity. 
uh, and also the way how 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 well do you recover from each sprint is more defined by your aerobic capacity than than anything else so still i believe uh doing some volume for those 60 minute uh, efforts it's it's an important part of your training program uh and obviously uh when you're well uh fueled at the beginning before the start of a race and you have a you, you have some 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 yeah well let's say one beat on on the bike um you're definitely not going to be glycogen depleted after 60 minutes um but still uh volume for a 60 minute effort is is an important part of of the training program in my opinion yeah i mean i bonked i think i bonked on an hour hour and a half ride the other day at like hour and 15 I was completely empty. I was like, I didn't even think this was physically possible. I didn't bring any food with me um, so I had to go to the, the coffee shop. Um, but apparently, apparently it is physically possible um, to deplete it after an hour 15. Uh, just going back to something quite technical, and this is a, there was a rule change this year for the TT bikes. And for people that don't know, there was previously, I don't know it too well, it's sort of beyond me, it's very technical, but for riders over 190 centimetres, they were able to use certain extensions in recognition of the fact, or because of the fact that they were so tall to allow them to get into a, a more aerodynamic position equivalent to, say, a 170 centimetre rider, um, whereas riders like uh, Pavel Sivakov He's a good example, I think. He's about 187, 188 centimeters. He wasn't allowed to use, I'm just going to call them for simplicity, the special extensions. Um, and you see Sivakov kind of cramped up uh, under the previous rules. And I think there was the change this year, you'll know better than me, Mathieu, about was it scaling it so that now riders between 180 and 190 are allowed to use um different yeah, extensions it's, it's it's pretty straightforward so the uci now divided, <laughs> divided <laughs> the all the riders in three length categories category one two and three okay For category one basically nothing has changed compared to what it was before category two are the riders between 180 and 189 centimeters uh, who are now allowed to put the handlebars three centimeters three centimeters more forward and they can they put their hands two centimeters higher. And then for the riders uh, taller than 190, they can still put their handlebars at 85 centimeters in front of the bottom bracket, which hasn't changed since last year, but they can put their hands higher, four centimeters higher than, than previously. And then there are also some, some, some minor other changes, but these, these are the basic, um, yeah, the, the main changes compared to last year. And how do you? How much of a difference does it actually make for uh, Teo Gagenhart, who's one eighty-two, or a Grant Thomas, who's one eighty-two, or a one eighty-one, or a Mikkel Bjerg, who's in that zone? Like, how many seconds are we talking over? Let's pick a fictitious thirty-minute flat pancake flat TT course, neutral wind. I can't say because aerodynamics is so. <laughs> special there's yeah. there's no there's no rule of thumb i mean when i go to the wind tunnel i always say we go into the wind tunnel with two questions we got one solutions and six questions more at the end of the day so 
it's very individual, but I think in terms of safety, there's already a little bit of improvement because oh, really? what what in most the, most of the riders what they're trying to achieve is 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 hiding their head behind their hands. So what we we are doing that that riders were only uh, gripping their their uh, extensions with with two fingers, whereas now especially the long, the taller riders being able to put their hands higher, they have they have more grip, so they can they can really grip the poles with with more fingers and have more stability. I think that that was also one of the things the UCI wanted is to improve uh, safety in a in a on the TT bikes. Um, so th that that is a change, but I cannot say as a rule of thumb, everybody is becoming faster because of the new rules. We tested the, some, some of the riders, unfortunately not all riders yet, were taller than 180. And, and for some riders, it didn't really make a change. And for other riders, it made a huge change uh, in terms of aerodynamics. And that's why in the end, you have to test everyone if you want to know how, how much the advantage is. So I, I, I cannot say uh, as a rule of thumb, the riders taller than 180 they become 30 seconds faster or something because it's really individual okay yeah i mean i was speaking to a rider who tested it before the rule change i think in middle of 2022 in that zone and, and he was really excited before the wind tunnel test because he'd had a got big power and his tt was kind of it was, it was fine but he's he's like i got big power why can't i be oh, i should be an elite time trial rider and then they tested the new position and he didn't really get faster, and he was actually pretty disappointed. He was like, maybe my body shape, my body conformation is just not aerodynamic, uh, which is, like, also possible too. Like, people are built with different CDAs, um, I guess. Yeah, but, it's true. But the yeah. way we look at it is it's, we, we, we take a system approach. So we, we really look not only at the bike or not at the rider, but just as a complete system. And you want to obviously make the complete system as aerodynamic as possible, but everything is has an influence on everything. So making maybe your your uh, putting your hands higher will have also an influence on your shoulder uh, with and and will also have an influence on your head position. So in the end, like I said before, there's no rule of thumb. You have to test everything out and and try to go to the optimum. Um, but but ev everything there's an interplay and in everything in aerodynamics and that's why the system is important and not just single helmets or uh, the fastest wheel or whatever you're you we are looking at the system and how much does that change the system like do you do you test like a slow speed system like say you have the uh the tour de swiss course uh where skielmos are smashed the uphill part and then did a good descent was you know not slow but slower than i used on remco on the quick part do you test like a different systems for okay we, we have to do a climb on this course we're going to go at 27 to 30 kph maybe 25 kph on the climb but we're not changing the the tt bike do you test almost as well how to ride ride on those climbs or what what equipment changes for a slower course or actually there's no equipment or gear changes for a 40 kilometer an hour average tt and a 55 kilometer an hour average tt 
Um, well, obviously, when we are testing, we are testing different wind speeds, so we we have an idea of of what is happening at at lower speed and what's happening at higher speeds. Um, but I think that the the biggest change or or the main thing that that is uh, changed is is the position of the of the handlebar. So we can see uh, in some riders that that going lower is is a little bit more faster but it's something they cannot uh, hold for let's say 40 minutes so when we okay. have a, a short prologue we can put the rider in a more aggressive position uh because Sepp. we know he he can make Sepp is a prologue master <laughs> yeah he's the master yeah <laughs> no he did a good prologue in Tour de Romandie I swear like last year yeah, and all, and also in uh, in Vuelta in, yeah. uh, in Burgos, yeah, two years ago, yeah, it's true. Yeah, no, but th that that's I think th those are the things that that can change a little bit. So more aggressive uh, handlebar position um, when it's a short, fast TT, whereas a little bit more comfortable when it's a little bit longer. Uh, th so th those are things that that can change, um, influenced by the course or by uh, yeah by the nature of the course. Okay. And last question, I think it's, it's on everybody's minds. It's because it just happened. And it was one of the most strange TTs that we've ever seen. And I remember, you know, preparing for it, it was difficult to have answers of what, what would happen. The Giro, the final Giro TT, how much work went into that uh, from your perspective, um, given that there was really no frame of reference in recent cycling for a TT that was like that at all? Yeah, a, a lot of work, obviously, um, and especially thinking, okay, what, what's what's the biggest, the, the, the best setup to, to go up that mountain? Uh, and the, fir the first the uh, first 10k was pretty obvious, and yeah. I was happy that it was also very clear how the rules were. Well, in the end, it was very clear. There was not so much clarity up front, but but we, as teams together, we made sure that that there was this bike change zone, and there was no way of of uh, changing the bike two kilometers afterwards, like like Movistar in the Vuelta 2020. Um, so that made it very very clear what was asked uh, and what had to be done. And um, well, obviously, then then you're going to analyze the course uh, and the climb, how how much power Primos can push. We think over that period of time, uh, how how much time will the climb take? Uh, what gear should be used, uh, and also what gear Primoz likes to use. He's obviously a guy who likes to spin the legs a lot, so so we needed a, a very, very small gear. But on the other hand, we wanted bigger chain rings uh, for efficiency purposes. So all those things, yeah, were prepared up front, and, and Primoz was riding that bike already a lot in Tenerife. And never a chain drop, by the way. Yeah, is it too soon to talk about the chain drop? <laughs> <laughs> what happened? <laughs> he just hit a bump, and it... yeah, he just he just uh, yeah he, he hit a bump, and and but because he was spinning so high, I, yeah, we we think that the chain jumped a little bit, and before the chain was really completely back, he already pushed again, and he just pulled it off. So yeah, yeah, not right. a nice things to happen. <laughs> Right. No, but 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 yeah. Looking at at preparation, um, 
yeah everything was taken into account and especially also also with primos input because also the helmet change is also something we considered but primos was very really really um clear on that, that really he, yeah, yeah yeah that he just wanted to go full gas with the helmet the tt helmet we we calculated also the loss of seconds when using a road helmet compared to a tt helmet and also the TT helmet is obviously a little bit heavier than the road yeah. helmet so and heating. also and heating so we also knew that he would lose a little bit time using the the tt helmet of the climb and in the end you just put everything together and we talk with the rider because in the end you want to have a plan which is supported by the rider and not a plan that's just pushed by me or by the performance team because when it's not supported by a rider and the rider doesn't believe in it it's it's never going to be as effective as as in the situation where everybody's behind it so yeah in the end it worked out it worked out uh, really well and um and uh, but it's also because Primo's really really uh, determined on how to do it with with the info we gave him okay and yeah cuz i was thinking if that was a 30 degree day doing a climb at 12 kilometers an hour wearing a tt helmet for 25 minutes like your head will cook um and there's got to be big losses but i guess it wasn't it was quite shaded on the climb and it wasn't so hot that day and also yeah like the psychological effect of i don't think any rider likes changing bike during a tt like no rider looks forward to okay i'm gonna have to get off this bike stand for five seconds and then change bike um and, and some riders maybe they don't mind it as much i when i looked at the planche de belfi bike change with primoz like he it, he looked i don't think he wanted to change bike compared to like i don't know pagacha seemed more relaxed um maybe that because i was because of knowing the time checks or whatever but yeah then maybe the helmet thing is just an additional stress like i'm gonna have to take this off um but i guess because i saw van wilder with the snood the specialized um i was like that must be so hot on, on yeah. this climb i might vary by helmet as well um but yeah i guess you got another another difficult tt to prepare for in the tour where that's also like a very very difficult tt course um to project and i think it's becoming it's always interesting to me to see the different the different strategies and i think that swiss tt was really really interesting with how schelmoser paced it um knowing the rider's capabilities like he's he's really small he's not that aerodynamic compared to remco at 55 kph and to save a little or to yeah just basically smash the climb where the wind speed is lower i think it's it's really interesting to see that across all teams actually and um yeah understanding how all teams are understanding their own riders capabilities but yeah that's that's all i all i had thanks thanks for letting us uh letting me pick your brains uh matthew good luck with the tour de france what are you going do you go to the tour for the start or you just go for the on the second rest day before the tt yeah, I'll be there a little bit earlier uh, already to help the team out with with uh, with bidons, etc. On the roadside okay. in the alpine stages, and then then I'll be there for the TT, obviously. Okay, well, good luck. Hope it all goes well. Uh, thanks. And thanks for coming on to LRCP. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.